We begin Luke chapter 2 this morning, if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible. Luke chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Father, as we come to this simple text, not very many verses, not even a ton of detail, help us understand what's at play, what's going on, what's, what is happening in the birth of Christ. God, I pray you would just give us even a glimpse of the glory this year. In Jesus' name, amen. As I look at this text and read in verse 7 of Luke chapter 2, and she gave birth. It's a miserable experience trying to preach the birth of Christ. And the reason why is because this is literally one of the simplest texts you could ever see. Background information on the time, the place, journey, birth. And yet... This is the intersection of everything that's important to you and I in the entire universe. All history points towards this little baby, this child, this son of God. Literally, everything intersects here. I was making a list. What could be the main point of my sermon? After I filled up a whole sheet, even from just Luke's perspective, I can, all I can say is be in awe that these simple verses represent the moment in time when Everything that's important to you and I, the whole meaning of the universe, the culmination, the apex of history comes on the scene and our text says, and she gave birth. (laughs) And just let me read one paragraph. Paul 
trip rights, and none of these come close to encompassing. Imagine how long we could spend thinking about what it means that God takes on flesh and becomes man. You could spend forever diving the depths of that truth. And then you could think of it, well, was the embryo, the uh, the egg human, and you can start to you can think forever about the mystery of that, and you'll go crazy. Here's what Paul Tripp says: Look into that manger at that baby boy, and see grace. The Christmas story is about grace in its most shocking and surprising form. The Lord of Lords, one of incalculable glory, humbles Himself and takes on human flesh and blood. The Creator, in a way that boggles the mind, becomes the created. The One who made a perfect world now exposes Himself to a world stained with imperfections. The judge of all things places himself under judgment. The one who deserves worship becomes the lamb sacrifice. The one who deserves everyone's love subjects himself to being despised and rejected. The one who owns all things lives with no place to call home and no place to rest his weary head. Here in a single word, the name Jesus is the shocking turn in the redemptive story. Last night, as my head, my weary head, hit my comfortable my pillow, literally the my pillow, the great pillow that gives you a great night's sleep, I could not help but think as my head lay on that pillow, the Son of God, the One who owns all things, had no home, no shelter, no place to call home. Foxes have better homes. Birds have better homes than the Son of God had. As you consider the shocking, the absolute shocking realities of the birth of Christ, as your head hits the pillow tonight, be amazed at our Savior, at God's redemptive plan. So, I approached this text as simple as I could. That's how it comes to us. So let's just take it as it comes, and I could only get it down to seven subpoints of what we can see here, and there's so much more we could go into. The first point 
And the drive of this sermon is real simple. Trust Jesus. That's what your life is all about. It, it gets that simple. Trust Jesus. And as we see God giving us Jesus and Jesus willingly coming, we can learn these things about God. Trust in God's progression. What do I mean by that? Look in at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In those days. In what days? In what days? What days came before those days? And what days come after those days? Where are we at in history? Paul Tripp, let me quote him once again, says, the Christmas story loses its meaning and beauty when it's ripped out of the great redemptive historical march. It's more than a story of a family with no place to say stay. More than a story of singing angels, amazed shepherds, searching wise men, and a jealous monarch. If you just take the mere details we get and call this Christmas, call this the birth of Christ, you miss the whole point. The birth of Christ falls, came in those days, and happened in these ways, but at a certain point in time. Since we don't have time, we can simplify it. God created the world in the beginning. The world was perfect. There was peace. There was fruitfulness everywhere. Joy and life abounded. But then, after the creation, came the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, creation became a place of groaning. The people groan. The creation itself begins to groan as a curse is laid upon it all. Relationships are broken between man and woman and fellow man and God and even man and animals. And death hangs over the entire world. You know, we talk about the fall. We think about the fall sometimes, but you got to remember that because of sin and because of our rebellion, just take the flood. Every human being on the face of the earth except one family was wiped out. And it was right. You realize that? It was right. That's how evil the rebellion of man is. And there's only one illustration, maybe better than the fall, that shows us how bad our fall was. It's when the Son of God shows up on the scene and He's born to die. That's the only thing that I can think of more shocking than the punishment being everyone's going to die 
Think how many babies drowned in those waters. How many little three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. And yet what's even more shocking is that it took God becoming man to go to the cross and die to purchase our redemption. So, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In those days, in the days after John the Baptist was born, God organized the events that the Son of God would come and be born because God was not willing to leave His creation without hope and without Him. You understand that God's justice, He would have done right if He wanted to never send a Savior. He would have just been right. We would have been wrong. He would have been right. But God in His mercy and His love was unwilling to leave us without hope and without Him. The worst part of our rebellion is it created the separation between us and our Savior. So trust in God's progression of time in saving us and in, in your life. Right now you might be really frustrated with the point in time in your life you're in. And you're saying, if I was God, I would do it different. And I just want to say, if God got this right, He's got the rest of it. Trust Him. Trust Him. If He sends Christ to you to save you, that's the biggest thing. He hasn't forgot about you on all the other things. Second, and it's a close cousin. It's a, it's related. Trust in God's providence. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Here, Luke set the birth of Christ in its secular context. He tells us who is ruling in Rome, who's ruling, who's the governor of Syria at, in those days, this particular emperor made a decree that all those in his kingdom need to go be registered and almost for sure for the purpose to tax his people, and especially the Jews. This was a sad reminder of the fact that God's people were under a foreign leadership. And yet, the amazing thing, and Luke does this, by the way, all throughout his his uh, gospel, 
is he sets us in the context of history. Remember, right at the beginning, the reason why he wrote his gospel was that we could be sure of what we know about Christ. If Jesus Christ didn't come at a point in time in history, you know, some people talk about God, uh, his love for us, God's forgiveness as is kind of this feeling he has, almost like Jesus Christ is this metaphor. I have, I, I want to show love for you. I would even send my son. No, at a particular point in history, God purchased your salvation for you through Christ sending his son to die in your place at a place and time in history payment for your sin was made by a specific person who lived at a specific time when these men were ruling it's not subjective it's objective the gospel, the good news, is not some good-hearted news of forgiveness. It's a baby at a place in time who lived a life and died under the wrath of God. It's an event in history. Isn't that what Luke is getting at? When he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be read registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria Paul talks about God's perfect timing in this way but when the fullness of time had come at the time of God's perfect choosing God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law and here's where it just gets too great. Why was Jesus born? Well, how long a list do you have? You know, Jesus, or not Jesus, John Piper wrote 50 reasons Jesus came to die. You could do 50 reasons Jesus was born. One reason was to die. And through that death, all these other reasons. But listen to what he says in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How about that? God sent Christ to be born of a woman so that you and I can be adopted into the family of God. And Paul said, at the fullness of time. And Luke tells us it was at the time when Caesar Augustus was ruling. By the way, Caesar Augustus began his rule 14 years before Christ was born, or 27 years before Christ was born, and he held that rule until 14 years after he was born. This particular emperor of Rome uh, was one of the better emperors. He stopped civil wars. He brought a time of peace in the land where things were relatively uh, peaceful. But in those days, at that time, when he sent the decree that this registration would take place, 
is when the birth narrative of Christ is set. And look at verse 3. And here we're going to look at how we should trust in God's promises. And all went to be registered. Everyone under uh, Caesar's rule went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Well, that's interesting. There's a lot of specifics there pointing us. They live in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth, but they went up to Judea. It's a, it's actually south, but it's a climb up about 700 feet, uh, <clears throat> higher than Nazareth is, is Bethlehem, uh, which is, uh, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. Now, nobody knows why Mary went with, if this was Joseph's choice, if she was close to give birth and he wanted her to be there. There's nothing in history that made would make us think that uh, the women of the day needed to go and be registered. But we're told in this text that Mary took this journey. And, and it says, it calls her his betrothed who is with child. Uh, we know that they have not consummated their union yet until after Christ uh, was born. And so she's called his betrothed who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, there's something that's important to realize here. This journey is a journey that is about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This isn't an easy journey when you're walking or taking a donkey with you. It's tough land to navigate. Uh, if you're nine months pregnant, it would be really tough. Uh, you've probably thought about all those things. But the part that's amazing in God keeping His promises is how this fulfills specific promises of where the Messiah was going to be born. In Micah 5.2, uh, here's what we read. This is written 700 years before uh, this account, before Christ's birth. Micah the prophet, whose uh, prophecy to Israel is basically one of judgment and of hope. That there's going to be impending judgment on Samaria and, J and Jerusalem because of their sins, that the Assyrians and Babylonians are going to come in and destroy them, but God is going to give them a shepherd that will save them. Here's what we read. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah is just a district of, of Israel where Bethlehem was, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, 
he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So Micah said, there's going to be one born from Bethlehem. We know from John chapter 7, verse 42, the Jews uh, expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. The problem is Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, 90 miles away from Bethlehem. But God in His providence, but God in His promise-keeping puts into the heart of a pagan ruler one who's not a believer, probably for greedy purposes, to collect taxes. Let's have everyone come and be registered. And so Joseph and Mary make the trip, and we're told in our text, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Here's the thing. You can take the promises of God to the bank. You can. If God can organize in His providence, in His sovereignty, Christ being born in Bethlehem when they don't even live there, you can trust the... Here's the thing. If Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and He was then you can know that every promise that God ever gives us in the future, whether it's about your salvation, your home as children of God, adopted into God's family, living with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth, the promise to come again is all guaranteed because God has already kept the most amazing promises you can ever imagine. I was just reading about the willingness of God. You know what it would take to get the Son of God to take on flesh? It would take a God who would be willing to love and forgive rebels. God was willing. It would take a Son willing to go fulfill that plan. Christ was willing. It would take a God willing to fulfill every promise He gave to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to David and through the prophet Micah's mouth, and he did, and he will. You can trust the promises of God, and it is put on display in the fact that the time for birth happened to be in this town, Bethlehem. Four, trust in God's program. Here's the thing. Here's what you find if you read the Bible. You would never do it the way God does it. That's what makes this book divine. We would never do it the way God does it. God does not sleep. He does not slumber. He's all-wise. He's all Powerful. He never loses control for a second. And yet, 
we doubt God's plans, His sovereignty, His call on our life, our circumstances, so easily, just look, look at the birth of Christ. You know, I think about... Probably shouldn't give football illustrations all the time. But look at all the fuss for the Super Bowl. Two weeks of media and all this stuff going on and fireworks, everything. What are you going to do when the Son of God is comes on scene in the world? No human being is going to do it this way. And yet when you come to this little tiny town that nobody knows about, nobody really cares about, just like David, nobody cared about David, the youngest son, the shepherd boy, in this little town. Here's what we read, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Here's the thing, guys. If your wife is pregnant and you don't arrange or have a plan for the birth, you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) If there's not a plan in place to give birth, you're going to be in trouble. It seems like God sends His Son. He doesn't even have a place for His Son to be born. Or he does, but it's in an animal shelter. And the bed provided is a manger. No human being would come up with that story in a million years. John the Baptist, when his birth was announced, it's in the capital city of Jerusalem, it's in the temple. It's loud. He comes out. He does signs. Everyone's amazed. The whole town's talking. Time for the birth. All family and friends, everyone's there celebrating the birth of John. Jesus Christ is born. And almost nobody takes notice. Next week, we're going to see shepherds and wise men show up. Is this how you would do it? Is this the program you would set for Christ coming? Let me just read uh, some commentators here. Leon Morris says this, If there was ever an opportunity for God to enact His plan with a majestic flourish, it was at the birth of Jesus. But God did not presume upon humanity when He stepped in to redeem it. There was no pretense in his arrival. Rather, God chose to identify in the humblest way with those made in his image. The story of Jesus' birth in Luke mixes praise with simplicity. I mean, we get to see the angels praising, but man isn't taking notice of this. This is the way God planned it to be. And if you think of Christ's life, uh, he, 
He said he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. When God comes on the scene, he comes on the scene humbly as a servant, as one who subjects himself to pain and suffering. All the way to the point when Jesus dies on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know why he said that? Because it was true. God unleashed his wrath on his son on the tree so that he can give you and I the promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Jesus experienced the forsaking of his father when our sin was on him so that you and I could take that promise to the bank. In my worst possible scenario, circumstance, where I'm feeling sorry for myself, I will not be left alone. That's a fact. What a way God decided to unleash His Son into humanity in such a simple way. Let me just read Philippians 2 to you and uh, we'll move on to the next point. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That just means a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This isn't the way we would do it. It's counterintuitive. If we're more important than other people, then give us our rights. That's how we would do it. He was God, and He let go. He empties Himself and counts other people's lives more valuable than His own life. That is divine humility, divine wisdom. And we see it in the birth of Christ. Paul Tripp talks about even the straw in the manger that would poke into Jesus' side from beginning of his life to the end. He chose a path of suffering for the good of others. Unbelievable. Trust in God's proximity. Proximity, according to the Webster's Dictionary, means closeness, nearness, accessibility. Uh, God took on human flesh. He became man. The way John says it is the Word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death... So Jesus partook in flesh and blood. Why? To die. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Every person on the face of the earth lives under the fear of death. But Jesus took on flesh so that he could destroy the power of death. With his life, he chases away death. He disarms the devil because the devil can't accuse us of uh of our sin that's going to lead to eternal destruction, which we deserve, because we can point to Christ and say, look, God took on flesh. He was perfect. He came in my place. And then in Hebrews 4.15, we read this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. The birth of Christ reminds us, don't believe the lie that God is far from you. God took on flesh so that you can draw near to the throne of grace in the midst of your sin, you can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's a lie that God doesn't know what's going on in your life, that God's forgotten about you, that He can't sympathize with your weakness. In fact, we're told of Christ that He makes intercessions for us continually. You want to know what that means? That means Jesus Christ right now is praying for you when you're even forgetting about God altogether. He's praying for you. He's watching over your life. Christ is near to us. Six, trusting God's proxy. Now, i got to admit, I didn't know what that was. I'm just looking through the PROs as I'm making my list saying which ones of these uh, work here. But I just couldn't help but throw this in here. Proxy is a substitute, a go-between, a stand-in, a representative. Jesus Christ is God's representative to us. He shows us what the Father's like. He and the Father are one, and He's our substitute. The only way you and I are saved, we're in the line to go before the judge. Everyone is going to give an account to God. We're all guilty and the only people that get off are innocent people. We're standing there and your hope and my only hope is if someone can get inside our skin, take our name, take on our identity who never sinned and be our substitute to go stand before the judge so that the judge says not guilty. That's why Christ was born. There is no other Savior. There's no other way. 
Who else other than the God-man can be our substitute? And seven, which is closely related, is trusting God's provision. And here's where we'll end. Remember, in Genesis 21, God promised a barren man and woman that they were going to give birth to a child. In their old age, when they were past childbearing age, they were promised a son. And there was a promise that that son would bring blessing to the entire world. Many years go, goes by, no son. Abraham and uh, Sarah begin to scheme and say, obviously, we didn't get the memo. We thought God was just going to give us the son. We evidently got to figure this out. Why don't you sleep with Hagar, my maidservant, and we'll get a son that way. So that son grows up, 11 years old. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. He's like, no, we already took care of it. You were kind of slow on that. I'm 99 years old now, God. God gives Abraham Isaac. God's going to work this salvation. What a shocking way to work to give a man 99 years old and a woman who's 90 years old a child. But how much more shocking is this? The child begins to grow up. He's your special child from God. And God says, take your only son and go slaughter him on that mountain, Abraham. Hmm. See, you started thinking you knew God's program. Oh, he actually did come through. He did give us a son. It is going to be through Isaac. But now he says, go sacrifice Isaac. And here's what we read. After Isaac willingly climbed on to the uh, rocks and is ready to be sacrificed, and Abraham grabs the knife. Here's what we read in verse 10 of, of Genesis 22. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now we zoom forward, we've got a similar story going on. God promises a miraculous birth. This is the baby. This is the other son of Abraham. This is the baby, the exact baby the world needs. He's the one you and I need. He is the God-man. You could say the God-baby at this point. This son, like Isaac willingly climbed the altar to be slaughtered 
as a sacrifice to the Lord. But this time, as the moment approached, there was no voice to cry, stop. No ram, no ram or lamb could take his place. Because what Christ realized, he said, Father, is there another way? God never spoke. God has the knife. The Father has the knife in his hands. He must provide himself. Man could not offer a good sacrifice for our sins. There's no other way. Only the Lamb of God can pay for your sin and my sin. And so the Lamb of God came to die under the almighty wrath of His Father in sinner's place. The provision of God is not a ram caught in a thicket where we all go, hoofta. The provision of God is a baby. A perfect baby. A son of the Son of God. The one who never sinned. Let me tell you something. God will provide for you. If He provided the most costly gift there could ever be His only Son, then you can know God loves you, that there's hope for all your life, because any other way God provides for you is peanuts compared to sending His Son for you. Trust God's provision. Trust Jesus. He's the apex of the redemptive story. Trust Jesus. He was born into history. Trust Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Trust Jesus. He's the one who executes God's redemptive program and plan. Trust Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Trust Jesus. He is God in the flesh and your only substitute. Trust Jesus. He's God's provision for you in every area of your life. Christ is life. Christ didn't come to teach us about grace. Christ is grace. He didn't come to teach us about a substitute or a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is life that destroys death. And that's just a little tiny bit of what it means that she gave birth. Let's pray. Father, Your ways are indescribable. Your glory is incalculable. Your mercy and your love, we can't even start to get our hands around. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you in your mercy and grace burst forth into this world to purchase us 
by your own son. And Father, thank you for raising him from the dead and giving him a name that is above every name. Help us worship this Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.